Um, want to welcome all of you. My name is Dan Song. I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration. It's good to be together as we come to God's Word this morning. I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles provided for you underneath the chair in front of you. And there you could turn to page 878. 878 of the church Bibles. And we are actually going to begin a vision series uh, for the next four Sundays. And uh, as we think about the fall, not only is it about pumpkin spice lattes, but it's also when much of the ministry of our church is launched. And so we've already begun our Bible studies. Our women's Bible study was on Wednesday. The men's kicks off this Wednesday. Uh, community groups have begun. Uh, much of the life of our church begins here in the fall. And it's always important to be able to remember why we exist and what we're for. Um, if you remember back when we were doing our Acts series, for those that were here, we looked at the Antioch church. In Acts chapter 11, what do we see in Acts chapter 11 with the Antioch church? They became the hub for the church to be able to plant more churches in Gentile nations Eventually, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, where we exist because of this Antioch church. And what was so remarkable about this Antioch church was that they represent many of the things that we want to strive to be. So when you look at the church, there was restoration through suffering. There was maturity through the steadfast teaching and exhortation. There was service because of the generosity of a famine that had come to Jerusalem. And obviously we see evangelism, sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that was very evident. And as we use this church in Antioch as an example, that's going to be the kind of where we leap from, launch from, as we think about who we are in this vision series for restoration for the next four Sundays. So if you're visiting, we're glad that you're with us. We want this to be a place where in the midst of many, many great churches in St. Louis, uh, what makes us different? Why has God called us uh, here in this little part of St. Louis uh, to be the good hands and feet of Jesus to others? So I'm going to invite uh, John Judd to come on up, and he's going to read for us an, a story about restoration uh, from a man named Zacchaeus. So he's going to read Luke chapter 19 right there. Uh, verses 1 through 10. So let's give attention to God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for though the grass withers and the flower fades, your word endures forever. And so, Lord, I pray that this good word that we have heard this morning would transform us, would restore us, and that, Lord, we would be people who would be able to bring about redemption and restoration in the places that you have called us to. So do that good work, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a famous uh, author and speaker. His name is Simon Sinek. And many years ago, in a TED Talk, he gave a famous speech on the importance of why versus the what. He says that too many organizations focus on the what rather than the why. Now, many, maybe many of you have already seen this talk, but he gives the example of an organization, a, a, very, a very successful organization, Apple. And he says this. He says, a lot of times, instead of the why, 
followed by the how and followed by the what, we kind of go the other way. The what, the how, and the why. And what he, does, what he says is imagine Apple focusing on the what, saying we make great computers. And then saying how we do it, it's beautifully designed, simple to use, and user-friendly. Do you want to buy one? Now, nothing in that stirs our hearts to actually buy an Apple computer because they don't focus on the what. They begin with the why. And he says this is how they do it. The why is everything we do, we believe in challenging the status quo. We believe in thinking differently. And how do we do it? We make things beautifully designed, easy to use, and user-friendly which we happen to make great computers. The what? Do you want to buy one? And because Apple has always focused on the why, that is why they have become so successful. This proves people don't buy what you do, but why you actually do it. Now, I'm not saying the church is some uh, corporation trying to churn out profit. But like any organization, Simon, Simon Sinek argues, is we need to know the why. And here at Restoration, I think we will be able to say the what of what we do at Restoration. We have community groups. We have a retreat. We do all these different things. But why do we do what we do? Why do we exist? What is the purpose of us being here, here in St. Louis, right by Westport? Well, we have a vision statement, and it's this. It's to pursue the restoration of people, communities, and cultures in the greater St. Louis area and the world through the transforming power of the gospel. In other words, what we're trying to say is the why of why we exist is that the gospel of Jesus transforms and restores all things, and the church is called to be the means by which these things happen. God has called the church to do that. And we believe we exist to bring about the restoration that God is doing. And we get to play a part of that. And the how and the what follows this, the why. And here in this story that we just read, that John read for us, we see a beautiful story of restoration. A beautiful story of restoration of this man named Zacchaeus. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. And the question for us is this. As you sit here listening to this homily this morning, the question I want you to wrestle with is, do we believe that the gospel of Jesus can bring about restoration in people, in communities, and in cultures? Do you believe that? As our other pastor John preached, or preached, prayed this morning about what has happened in Morocco, do we actually believe, when you read the news that over 2,000 and the death toll continues to rise, do we believe God is actually bringing about restoration in our world, in your hearts, in your lives, and in the lives of your family and friends and your coworkers? Do we believe that? Here in this story, Zacchaeus shows us that it is possible and God is restoring all things as they were intended to be. Beautiful, good, very good. And so let's look at this story as we look at Zacchaeus. Now, Frederick Beekner, he's an author and theologian, he said that the gospel can be summed up in three ways. Tragedy, comedy, 
and a fairy tale. A tragedy in that it is about human failure. Comedy that it is of being loved overwhelmingly by God despite our failure. And that the fairy tale is of a restoration through his love. A fairy tale that is very much true. And that's exactly what we see here in this story. It is tragedy, comedy, and a fairy tale. What's tragic? Well, Zacchaeus is a tragic man. In verse 2, we read that he is a chief tax collector and he is rich. Now, what this meant for Zacchaeus was that he would basically, he worked as a Jewish man for the occupying empire, Rome. He was taxing his own Jewish people exorbitant amounts of money above what Rome was asking for, meaning that he would take whatever difference he collected. And so this system was ripe for corruption, and he got filthy rich from it. But he wasn't just any tax collector. He was the chief tax collector. What that meant was he was like the godfather of the mafia. He had his henchmen, undermen who would basically collect all the taxes and he would get a cut of everything that they got. He was filthy, filthy rich. One commentator said it this way, Walter Brueggemann, we can reasonably assume that Zacchaeus must have been corrupt, possibly violent, and definitely not anyone we would want to be around. Zacchaeus stood as a symbol of all that was wrong in their world the poster child of corruption, of extortion, of greed, of elitism. The way I could best describe this in our time right now is if you're familiar with the PGA, the Golf Association. And about a year ago, maybe more than that, there was a number of golfers in the PGA that left the PGA organization to join this new tournament or new association called Live that was backed by Saudi blood money. And when all these golfers left for live, there was vitriol. There was anger. Because why? They were choosing greed, money, over what was actually the ethics of taking blood money from the Saudis. And they were ostracized for it. And as we think about Zacchaeus, that's how they looked upon Zacchaeus, but even more so because that community, the Israelite community, was entrenched. They were enmeshed. You were supposed to be one of us, but he was a traitor, a collaborator with Rome. So even though he was rich and powerful, it cost him so much because he would have been rejected by everyone around him. He had no place of belonging. Rome, he was useful but replaceable. He was a Jew. But for the Jewish people, he was a traitor. He was a collaborator for Rome. And so everyone that he would want to be in relationship with, to find any belonging, he had none. He had no love. He had no dignity, no no meaningfulness, belonging, honor, just profound loneliness and isolation. Walter Brueggemann, the commentator said although wealth can buy you many things it can't buy you respect and belonging so there must have been an empty hole in his life deep in his soul there was a gnawing sense of isolation and alienation what you realize is that money and power can become easy distractions for isolation 
and loneliness and emptiness. This is the tragedy of Zacchaeus. But from tragedy, we see comedy begin. This isn't the kind of comedy we're talking about in TV sitcoms where it's about lowbrow, simple one-liners. This comedy is about the amusing, absurd love of God that has been given to Zacchaeus. And we see it here. Despite of his failures, despite of his tragic character, God showers him with love. Now, Zacchaeus hears about this Jesus, and we don't know how or what he's heard about Jesus. We know that through the gospel accounts, Jesus has spent much time, many days, with tax collectors, right? Maybe one of the tax collectors had told Zacchaeus about, about this Jesus. But Jesus is coming into his town, Jericho. And so he wants to seek Jesus out. And he does. But because we find out of his low stature, his small stature, he cannot see Jesus amongst the throngs of crowds that are around him. And so what does he do? He runs ahead of the crowd and climbs up a sycamore tree. Now that itself is comedy. Because grown men, especially rich, powerful men, never ran. Or, let alone climbed a tree. That was for children. That was for slaves to run for their master. But Zacchaeus didn't care. That deep longing, that deep hole in his heart, that money and power could not buy, he was hoping that Jesus could fill that hole. And he did something that was completely humiliating. He ran. He ran to seek Jesus out. He climbed up a sycamore tree to be able to see and listen and encounter this Jesus. The comedy of it all. And what does he do? What does Jesus do? He comes right to Zacchaeus. And in verse 5 he says, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. The comedy is that when no one wanted anything to do with Zacchaeus, Jesus sought him. Oh, the irony of it all, right? Zacchaeus was thinking that he was seeking out Jesus when Jesus was actually seeking him out. He was the one that was being sought after. And this is what is always the case in these stories, in the gospel. Jesus is always seeking us out. Zacchaeus comes down from the tree and he is joyful, that Luke says. But the people were not. The Israelites saw this and they were angry, they were annoyed, they were disgusted. And Luke actually says they grumbled. Jesus had gone to be with the guest of a man who is a sinner. He doesn't deserve love. He doesn't deserve grace. He doesn't deserve welcome or honor. But isn't that the comedy of the gospel? As you hear me say this over and over again, even when the worst is known about you, love is still offered. This amusing, absurd, and overwhelming love that God has given to Zacchaeus is a beautiful comedy of the gospel. And in all great stories, we come to the fairy tale. The fairy tale being the, the storyline of transformation, specifically of characters and of people that are transformed into what they truly are meant to be and what we all long for, like Beauty and the Beast, right? 
where the beast is ultimately transformed into who he was always meant to be. That is at the heart of the gospel. That the fairy tale is one where we are transformed and restored into who God has always desired us to be. And we see it here. Zacchaeus is truly and completely transformed by Jesus. His heart has turned from stone to flesh. And Zacchaeus' response to the good news of Jesus is what? In verse 8, behold, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. What you see is God's extravagant love create an extravagant son who gives generously because he has received generously. That's the fairy tale. It's like the book of Ruth that we just finished last week. When you experience the hesed, the loving kindness, faithfulness of God, what does it cause us to do? It causes us then to show hesed to others. And Zacchaeus is so transformed by the gospel, so transformed by the love of God, he then pays back everybody, not just double, but fourfold, 400%. And what does Jesus say? Why did, what does he say of why he came into this world? In verse 9 and 10, as we finish this story, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. This is why Jesus came, to bring about restoration in people, in cultures, in systems, in our hearts. So then, what does that look like for us? Well, from Jesus' response, I have a few things for us to to just consider and meditate on this morning and this week. What does restoration look like in Jesus' response? Well, first, we see the restoration of identity. Identity. What does Jesus say about Zacchaeus? He says, he also is a son of Abraham. This man that has betrayed his people, this man that has alienated God, who works for the enemy, who who has gotten rich off of the poor, Jesus says, I restore you as a son of Abraham. He now is a child of God. He belongs to the family of God. And his identity is restored as one who belongs to the Lord. Right? Right? No matter his past failures, his corruption, he now belongs to the family of God. He restores our identities. And I know many of us have many different identities that we cling to, that are fractured and broken. But God wants to heal us and restore us to remind us of who we are and who we belong to. I read this book about Niels Vanderpool. He broke and broke and sh- actually not just broke, he shattered the world records for speed skating in the 5K and the 10K in the 2022 Winter Olympics. But heading into the 2022 Winter Olympics, he was underperforming. And he wasn't happy and was wondering why in the world was he struggling with his performances leading up to the Olympics. And as he took a step back, he realized There was a lot of fear in his heart. 
It was fear. Every time he stepped into the speed skating oval, he felt this fear overwhelm him. And when he, when he dug deeper into why he had that fear, he said it was because his entire source of meaning and identity in his life was as a speed skater. There was no Niels Vanderpool other than the speed skater he and everyone knew. And that caused all of this pressure and anxiety and this weight upon him. Because in that sport, any little misstep, any mishap, would blow your chance at world championships. So he did something extraordinary that was unheard of. And what everyone around him in that sport said was absolutely crazy. You know what he did? He worked his butt off five days a week, Monday through Friday. But on the weekends, he lived a normal life. He remembered having friends. And those friends would go out for beers. They would hike. They would go bowling. They would read books and establish a, a healthy habit of reading and watching shows and movies. This was blasphemy in the speed skating world. But this is what Niels Vanderpool did. You're not supposed to do those things on the weekends. You're supposed to go recover. You're supposed to go get massages. You're supposed to do dry needling. You're not supposed to go on hikes. But you know what he said? He said that whatever he lost in physical fitness, he gained in physiological resiliency because he was no longer scared to step into the ring. Friends, this is, this is us. You might find your identity, everything in your work. If I don't do this right, if I don't do that right, if I'm a failure from my boss, then I lose everything. It might be your family and raising your kids and thinking that if I don't raise them right to be who they are supposed to be and go to the best colleges, then I'm a failure and we live in that fear. Maybe you're single this morning or you just come off of a broken relationship and the fear for you is if I don't have that somebody, then my life is a failure. You see, but what the gospel does and what Jesus does to Zacchaeus is he restores us. He restores our identity to say we belong to him so that no matter what happens in our workplace, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our relationships, in our marriages, I am secure in Christ. I am loved. I am accepted. I belong. And there's nothing more beautiful than that. And that's why we here believe in the restoration that God brings into who we are and who we belong to. Because that is the essence and the most important thing about following Jesus. We belong to him. Even when the worst is known, he loves us and love is offered to you and to me. We are no longer outcasts, but we belong to the family of God. Second thing we see here is that there is a restoration of our homes. There's a restoration of our homes. This word was used enough times in this story that it just caught my attention. Because what Jesus says is he says salvation has come to this house. To whose house? Zacchaeus' house. And think about the house. Think about your home. For me, growing up in my home back in California and in Chicago, it was a place of shame. It was a place of guilt and condemnation. It was a place of self-hatred. 
and it was a place, a stigma that was carried with these things. But a home should be a place of safety, refuge, hospitality, joy, security, right? Just this past week, we lost three Ledoux students in a car accident when they ran into a home. And as I went over there to just pay my respects to where that crash was, and just lifting up a prayer for their, their family, man, I could not get over the, just the, the, the aura or the, the strong presence of grief and anger and hopelessness that was at that site, right? And you think about our homes. What do they represent for many of us? It's brokenness. It's pain. It's suffering. And what Jesus says is that salvation has come to this home. A home where it was supposed to be the center of family life. A home where you would have meals and of intimacy. A place where you would be fed and nourished. And Jesus says, this place is now no longer a place where all the Jewish community and all your neighbors would look at your home and say, oh, that person is a traitor. Oh, this place is one of shame and they need to be condemned. If he had a family, if he had a wife and kids, oh, they're the worst. No, no longer. Salvation has come to this home as a place of hospitality, of warmth, of restoration. What does that look like for you and for me? Here at Restoration to practice hospitality. That is so important to our church. That's what I hear over and over again from many of you who practice this over and over again in your homes. To bring restoration, life, to bring joy, to bring vulnerability, to share. This is what we want to see happen as Zacchaeus' home was a place of restoration. We want that to be a place for us. As you heard from our adult director, Jenny Lin, when she taught on hospitality. It's a place, it's a way to bless, not impress. It's okay that your sofa's tattered up. It's been used. That's what we want to see happen. Not a place to impress where you have the nicest furniture and all white cabinets. Who cares? We want this to be a place where when you step in, you feel the love of God. Lastly, it's not only a Restoration of identities and of our homes, but of our relationships. Immediately with the, with the restoration of Zacchaeus, what do we see? There is immediate economic and relational outcomes for the good of the poor and those in their community. Right? Zacchaeus was only supposed to give 20% back. But what does he do? This is Hesed again. Not the letter of the law, but the heart of the law. He gives 400% back to all those that he basically ripped off. Right? And in so doing, not only is he bringing economic restoration, but he's restoring the relationships that he has fractured and broken, that he has severed in his workplace. And in so doing, what we want to be able to say is that we want to be able to be a place where not only do we bring restoration and pursue restoration to those that are marginalized, invisible, who are hurting, broken, but we also want this to be a place where there's restoration of relationships, marriages that are fractured and broken, 
families that are going through much hurt and pain. Friendships where we have not spoken to that person in years. We want this to be a place where there's restoration of relationships because this is ultimately what Christ has died for. When we were yet enemies, what did Jesus do? He died for us. That's what we want to see happen here. And this is exactly why we could believe in restoration. Why? Because Jesus did it. He came. And you talk about his identity. He was forsaken by his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You talk about his home. He had no home. He took on flesh and came down into this earth where he had no place to rest his head. And you talk about relationships where we disowned him. We betrayed him. We rebel against him. We choose what we think is good and right. And yet what does Jesus do? He comes and sacrifices himself, dies on the cross, his shed blood for us so that we might be forgiven. But that's not enough. Because what happens to actually believe in restoration? He puts death to death. He conquers death, rises from the grave on the third day, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father to bring back and restore all that is broken and wrong. That is the good news of Jesus, and that is why we can actually participate in restoration, because Jesus is already doing it. And there will be one day when he returns where there will no longer be tears, no more pain, no more broken relationships, no more lost identity, but we'll be able to finally enjoy life as God had intended. And he invites us into that here at Restoration to be able to pursue the restoration that God is doing here on earth as it is in heaven. So why do we exist? We believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms lives and restores broken things back to the way God always intended. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work that you have done. Lord, there would be no hope for restoration if it were not for what you did in overcoming death resurrecting from the grave in three days so that we might actually have the hope of life, of healed relationships, of hospitality, and of our lives and our hearts being restored. So Lord, I pray that you would now do that good work as we come to the table. Lord, strengthen us through the, these, these common elements of bread and of wine so that, Lord, we might be nourished as you practice hospitality and you invite us here at the table, Lord, I pray that you would restore our hearts. You would restore our relationships. You would restore our homes, our workplaces, our schools, our universities, so that, Lord, we might be able to see the good work that you are doing here on earth. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.